Acts chapter 20, we conclude that chapter this morning, page 929. If you don't have a Bible with you, please follow along in the Bible that's provided there in the pew rack. We begin in verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to, set, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown to you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. 
and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. As far as the reading of God's word. Mentioned that the women's book study is beginning uh, this, uh, this book, uh, The Love of Loves and the Song of Songs by Philip Ryken. He was for uh, 10 years the senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And in his very final sermon there back in 2010, he confided um, or, or uh, revealed to the, to the congregation uh, that what had been most touching to him in his final weeks as he prepared to leave that charge and become the president at Wheaton College, one of the most touching things was the number of what he called strong men who came up to him and said that when they found out he was leaving, they cried like babies. Uh, tears for a pastor is a sign of affection and uh, appreciation for their ministry, a sign of admiration. And that's clearly happening in our text. Verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him. He'd been there three years and he's leaving. Um, and that makes them sad because of how much they appreciated Paul. Would it be hard to imagine, though, that mingled with the sadness could be a tinge of fear? of um, anxiety, maybe? Could it be that these elders were concerned about losing the Apostle Paul, uh, thinking, you know, how could we possibly do ministry without him? Paul's words to them are needed, are a needed reminder to every Christian. The church is not kept by any particular minister. That's not what keeps the church going. That's not what keeps the church faithful. Ministers will fail you. I will fail you. I have failed you. We do not put our hope in the guy who's up front, the guy who does all the talking, the guy we see the most often. Pastors are called by God, yes, but they are fallible men. So we can't put our hope in the future of the church in a charismatic preacher, or an empathetic pastor, or even a team of ministry workers. We can't even put our hope in the future of the church in a good body of elders. Maybe these are some of the things, you know, if you've been in a situation where um, you're, you find yourself in need of a, a new church, you move to a new area, or you're, you're looking for a new place, you think, well, you know, I could join here um, because I like the minister, but if he goes, maybe I, I wouldn't want to stay. Or I could join here because... These elders right now are okay, but what happens when their terms are up? See, this is where we kind of forget that's not what the church is about. The church is about where do we find Christ, and Christ is the one who keeps his church. And yes, he does that through means, in part through establishing officers in his church. But the good news is not that we might have a good preacher or we might have good elders. The good news is that we have a good God who holds on to his church. He has the whole world in his hands, and that includes his precious people, the church. And that means, friends, if you belong to God, if you belong to him by belonging to his church, you belong to him forever. Because what he holds on to, he never lets go. Paul 
highlight some of that. Maybe we didn't see it at first, but we'll draw it out as we consider his farewell discourse to uh, these brothers that he'd been in ministry with for some three years. He begins the farewell address with a testimony, and then it moves on to a charge. And in his testimony, he reminds them of the ministry that he modeled for them. And this is the first major portion of the chapter. And it's um, focused on Paul's example of service. So that's the first thing this morning, Paul's example of service. And then we will move on, secondly, to Paul's expectation of the shepherds that he's leaving behind. But first, his example. It's an interesting portion of Acts because we have many of Paul's speeches and sermons recorded in Acts, but almost all of them are apologetic. He's giving a defense of the faith. He's evangelizing uh, Jews or Gentiles, uh, unbelievers, and he's uh, winning them over to Christ. But here he's speaking to Christians. And so the subject matter is instead his ministry. And notice with me how he highlights five uh, things in his ministry. He says that he serves with humility. He served with humility. He served with heart, with endurance, with boldness, and then finally with a completeness or a comprehensiveness. First, he served with humility. Verse 19. You yourselves know how I've lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. Now, this is one of those puzzling sentences. Could you really serve the Lord with humility if now you're drawing attention to the fact that you serve the Lord with humility? And you're telling everybody about it in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters, the imaginary, um, fictitious, senior demon, Screwtape. He's writing to his apprentice, Wormwood, and he says this, I see only one thing for you to do at the moment. Your patient, that's the, you know, the uh, human that this demon is charged with, your patient has become humble. He's become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he possesses them. And this is especially true of humility. So has Paul lost the secret to humility now that the the very moment that he acknowledges it, making way for the devils to work pride in his heart? And I believe the answer is no, because of what he says in verse 24. If you jump there, we see what Paul has in mind by humility. He means that his entire, entire ministry has been... Not about himself, but about Christ. That's what he means by humility. I preached, Paul says, I preached Christ, not me. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God, of the grace of God. It's about God. It's about Jesus His time in Ephesus was marked by shining a spotlight on his Savior, not on himself. And that should be the goal for every Christian to count ourselves or our lives, to not count ourselves or our lives as precious, but to count the gospel as being precious, to count the the Savior as being precious. To make much of Christ is to be humble and to point out that your ministry has been about making much of Christ doesn't negate that fact. That doesn't make Paul a sudden arrogant because he's not saying, look how good I is. Even, look how good I am. He's not saying that. What he's actually saying is more of what he did those whole three years. He's saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You know how in my three years I was humble. What does that mean? I preach Christ. And in drawing attention to that fact, he once again highlights Christ. He served with humility. Secondly, Paul served with 
his heart. He says, I served with all humility. And then he says, I served with tears. And then verse 31, he comes back to that. Remember that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I say that, as I say, this is getting to the heart of the apostle. His emotion is shown here. His, his ministry is not simply an exercise in academic discourse, even though he spent so much time teaching and preaching. Uh, but rather, we could say it was a preaching that mattered to him. His heart was in it. He recognized that what hung in the balance was nothing other than the eternal destiny of the souls of the Ephesian men and women and boys and girls. You know, the longer that something lasts, generally, the longer that something lasts, the more it matters to us. And think about if, it's, if the time has come for you to purchase a new car um, or, or maybe some appliance at home, a piece of furniture, a new couch, let's say. These aren't decisions we make flippantly and say, oh, whatever, just grab the first thing we see. And why? Because we know we're going to be stuck with it for a long time. You know, hopefully 10 years, 15 years. And so because it's going to be around a long time, we want to make a decision that counts. You know what's going to be around a long time, boys and girls? You know what's going to be around a long time? Your souls. The shorter catechism, the the first catechism says, did God give Adam and Eve anything besides bodies? And the answer is yes, he gave them souls that will last forever. And if that's true... And Paul's job as a, as a preacher is to, is to minister to souls, to speak the truth to souls that last forever, then his preaching matters. And he puts his heart into it. It brings him to tears at point, thinking about the, the, the eternity that lies before these people. Do you recognize that, boys and girls? Do you recognize that your soul will last forever. And so it matters. It matters where you will be. It matters where you will be for eternity. Paul speaks of, of admonishing with tears. I think this speaks more of just his preaching with emotion. I think one of the clear takeaways of Acts 20 is that Paul really lived with the Ephesian church. He's, he wasn't just the reverend, the domine, you know, who showed up. On Sundays, they only ever saw him in the pulpit, and he was kind of uh, aloof to them and, and kind of at an arm's length. No, he went through the ups and downs of life with them. He serves them with tears. He was an empathetic person, and the Holy Spirit requires that sort of character from every single one of us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When we think of our own ministry, we cannot overemphasize the need to have heart. Not just truth, but the heart as well. If we have truth but not love, we have nothing. People want to see that we care, and so does God. Well, Paul cared. He served with humility. He served with his heart. Third, he served with endurance. Look at the end of verse 19. He said, I served the Lord with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, we know about these trials. We've read of them. Maybe not the ones that happened in Ephesus, but Acts has been filled with, with um, uh, a, a really intense um, trials for the apostle, life-threatening scenarios. And what's the point that he's making here? I didn't give up. I didn't give up. And we must not either. Ministry, or we could say more broadly, living a life of service to Jesus Christ is not going to be easy. 
It's not going to be easy. It comes with no guarantee of ease. And if we expected that, then yes, we would give up the moment that the going gets tough. But if we can go in eyes wide open, so to speak, uh, that will help us to model Paul and to serve even with trials. Fourth, he serves with boldness. Look at verse 20 and then verse 27. First, verse 20, it says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And again, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Perhaps more difficult than facing external trials of persecution or assassination attempts is that internal struggle that we call the fear of man. That's the reason Paul would have, if he had shrunk back, that's, that would have been the reason. He was afraid of what people would think, of what people would say. That, you know, that, that voice that anxiously whispers in our heads, if I say this, if I stand up for this, if, if I let people know this is really what I believe on this particular issue, I hold this view, what will they think of me? Maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. Maybe I should just step back. We, we shrink back. We as humans, we are good at shrinking when something difficult um, comes around. Um, how many people fled to Canada to, to evade a draft? That's shrinking back from something that's difficult. Um, well, none of you have done that, I'm sure. What's something that would be a little bit more uh, relevant? Ghosting. You know this term? It's another hip term. I've just been proving to you lately. I'm so cool. <laughs> Ghosting. That's this idea that when, um, you know, you have a falling out with somebody, uh, maybe in a relationship, and instead of having a difficult conversation, hey, you hurt me, you offended me, we need to mend things, or I'm just not feeling this anymore, I think we need to break up if it's a relationship. What you do instead is just never answer their calls. Um, you, you never answer their text messages. Uh, they come to the door, you turn the lights off, and you hide under your bed. That's ghosting. It's like you're gone. That's shrinking back from something that's difficult. We're good at that. Will we shrink back from the hard work, though, of proclaiming the gospel in season, out of season? Fifthly, finally, Paul was an example of service because he served with completeness or comprehensiveness, a totality. The end of verse 20 says that he taught everything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And we also learn that Paul spoke not only on Sundays at church, but throughout the week and from home to home. Verse 21, Paul preaches not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And then we're, we're told that um, in verse 27, that his message was the whole counsel of God, an important phrase. Proclaiming the whole counsel of God. That is, he didn't simply preach repentance. He didn't simply preach justification by faith alone. He preached the entire plan and purpose of God, how it culminates in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he brought it to bear on the everyday lives of his congregants. In the words of John Stott, he shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. And that's his testimony. That's his example of service. And now we move 
into the second portion of Paul's farewell discourse. First it was that testimony, now it's a charge, and it's his expectation of the shepherds that he's leaving behind, and it begins there in verse 28. Interestingly, he doesn't say, look, I've just kind of laid out for you my model of ministry. Now go do exactly that. Do these five things. He could have said that. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. And we should, as I've made a point of saying so far, we should model him in in these ways. Um, Instead, what he does is he draws out the Old Testament metaphor of the ruler as a shepherd, the leader as a shepherd. And uh, you, you see that happened in verse 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The, the prophets of old, you know, the, the minor prophets and the major prophets, they often rebuked the leaders of Israel's day for not caring for the people. And they did that by using this metaphor of, of shepherds not caring for their sheep rather than feeding the sheep, rather than gathering in the sheep. You've scattered them or you've exploited them. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. This is one key place that likely is on uh, the apostle's mind as he makes this point. Jeremiah chapter 23. One of of the indictments from the prophets against the, the, the elders of Israel. This is in verse 1. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And we are the sheep of his pasture. He's talking about his people, right? Declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, you've driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. I'm coming for you is what that, you know, is a play on words there. You haven't taken care of them, so I'm going to take care of you. I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I've driven them. So God is the ultimate shepherd. And then that, that comes to uh, crystal clarity, John 10. I am the good shepherd. I am the one that God spoke of in Jeremiah 23 when he says, The shepherds, the elders aren't doing it. I need to care for my people. Jesus says, I'm the one who cares for God's people. So then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. I'll bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful, multiply. But here's where it gets interesting. So we've already established that God is the ultimate shepherd in Jesus Christ. But then he says in verse four, I will set shepherds, plural, over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing. And so there's a twofold fulfillment of what of what God promises here to correct the errors of the leaders of, of the day. The first uh, foundational and, and ultimate fulfillment is, is God is the shepherd in Christ. But God works through under shepherds. So he doesn't just say, I will come and I will attend and I will gather. But he says, I will set shepherds over them. And now in Acts 20, Paul is enjoining the elders in Ephesus to fulfill this passage and to be the shepherds that God would have elders to be, the true shepherds that God said he would appoint so that the church would not be afraid, not be dismayed, not go wandering off and missing. And so Paul's main, uh, the main command, command from Paul in this context is that they would take care or pay attention. If we're back in Acts 20 now, He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Verse 31, be alert. Now that makes sense. Um, A shepherd needs to pay attention. 
uh, as they watch their fold to ensure that no sheep go wandering off and also that no evils come in, no wolves come in. But unlike the shepherd of sheep, the shepherd of souls must also pay attention to themselves. Isn't that interesting? Pay attention not just to the sheep, but first he says pay attention to yourselves. Why is that? Well, because it is often the case that a congregation only rises to the level of spiritual maturity of that of their leaders. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote an entire book on verse 28 of our text called The Reformed Pastor. Uh, But it comes with applications not just for pastors, but uh, for elders, for leaders in general. This is what he warns there, speaking of hypocrisy. He says, take heed to yourselves, watch yourselves, pay attention to yourselves, lest you be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others, and you be strangers to the effectual working of the gospel which you preach, and lest while you proclaim to the world the necessity of a Savior, your own hearts neglect him, and you miss out on an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves lest you perish while you call upon others to take heed of perishing, and lest you famish yourselves while you prepare food for others. And later on, he speaks more specifically of how the the hypocritical life can actually be a hindrance to the flock. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your mouth, and you be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labors. And that's why Paul says to the elders, watch out for yourselves, pay attention to yourselves. Now, more, more than that, the leadership of the church is something that Satan will specifically target and use to his own ends. Paul speaks of wolves coming in to threaten the flock, But then he says, but some of these are going to be you. They're going to come from among you. You will be the wolves. Dear church, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. They have an immense calling and task. And as one of our elders often says, the moment you sign up for leadership in the church, Satan has a target on your back. Pray for our elders. Now, after he says wolves are going to come in, and some of those wolves might even be from among your own group there, Paul says in verse 34, therefore, 31, therefore be alert. And I kind of thought that almost sounds like an understatement because, you know, with all those intense warnings before them, how is it that they don't all just resign right there? <laughs> you know, oh, good to know. We, we didn't realize exactly what we're up against. Have a good time in Jerusalem. Enjoy Pentecost. We're going to head back home and um, do something else with our time. Why, why is it that they don't just throw in the towel? Because it seems like this is just a burden that Paul's laid out here. But actually embedded in this speech, maybe we didn't notice it. I'm going to draw it out for us. He has embedded encouragements for elders about how God is the one who keeps the church. And that's important not just for elders, but for those who are under the care of elders to know that even as... We fallible men seek to lead the church. Ultimately, we aren't the ones that keep the church. God is. There are three things that we could note that's embedded in Paul's speech that shows that our hope is in what God is doing in and through and for his church. The first is this, that their appointment as elders is no accident. 
That's the first encouragement. It's no accident. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. What's it say? In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has been at work in the lives of these men and in the corporate life of this particular congregation in Ephesus, calling them to serve as elders. The Spirit is the one who's appointed them. It's God's church, and He takes care of it. He doesn't leave it orphaned. He not only sets in place the structures of pastoral care. It's not that just God has given us direction. This is how the church should be run. You need to have elders and, and, then, and then lets it go. He's not only set in place the structure of pastoral care. He set in place the pastors too. The shepherds themselves. God has appointed. The Holy Spirit has made these men overseers. You know, think about our, our nation. The framers of our constitution uh, gave us the rubric for a healthy and um, democratic government, including having chief executives and, and various legislators and the two different houses and all that, they, they gave us the rubric. But any people elected to serve since their time, that's on us, right? We can't say, well, they, 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 they ruined this for us. They didn't, they didn't uh, equip us enough because they're not here. No, we, we can't say that. But God doesn't work like that. He doesn't just give us the blueprint for how the church should run and then let it go. He also runs the church still right now to this day. By his Holy Spirit, he continues to oversee and orchestrate the life of the church. And we, we believe that. That's part of our ecclesiology. You know, if you're thinking about becoming a member of a church, or let me remind you, if you are a member of the church, when you take a vow to submit to the eldership, the leadership of the church, that's not just an arbitrary, we like these guys, we want you to do what they say. We believe the Lord, by his spirit, has appointed these men to this position. That's why we lay hands upon them. This is a sign where we believe we are confirming what's done in heaven here on earth. We believe God has called these men. Now we're just confirming that. And so there's a great onus upon us to heed the word of God from the lips of these men and to submit to them, whether we agree with it or not. It doesn't mean they're, they're infallible. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that there aren't times where we can't have dialogue. There, it doesn't mean that there aren't even avenues to go uh, to follow in our church government um, that you can follow when you believe an elder has sinned or erred. It happens. We're not saying that, but we're saying that the posture of a church member, the posture of a sheep, is one of submission not just because we said that's what we would do, because we believe the Holy Spirit has appointed them. And that's good news. That's good news. God cares for his church. And that's because the church belongs to God. That's the second thing. So first, the appointment of elders is no accident. Second, the church belongs to God. The latter half of verse 28. Care for the church of God, he says, which he has obtained with his own blood. If we ever doubt that God cares for us, we must remember that we belong to him by virtue of the blood of his son. He obtained or he acquired, he possessed the church because he redeemed her. And to redeem her, he paid the highest price imaginable. The, the life of his perfectly pleasing, well-beloved son. That's good news for elders who lead the church and also for members who submit to their leadership. God is the one who's ultimately in charge. 
And if he paid the price of the blood of his son, he's not going to let her go. If he's willing to obtain her by the death of Jesus, what would he not do to keep her? That's good news. Third, finally, God equips those whom he calls. The climax of Paul's speech is in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As they said their goodbye with uh, tears, Paul reminds them that while he's leaving them, there is someone that's not leaving, and that's God. And specifically, the word of God's grace is not leaving them. The word of God that Paul preached to them will remain with them even after his preaching ministry has ended. And it will continue to sustain and sanctify. A pastor may leave. God never leaves. He gives us his word, and his word is sufficient. I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able. It's able. Able to build you up. Able to bring you to heaven. That's what that means. Give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Build you up in this life and bring you into the next. God's word does that. Not any minister. Not any elder. Not any leader. The word of God. The word of his grace does that. God's word, friend, is sufficient to equip you in whatever calling you are in right now. That's, that's such a good word for those elders to hear as he's departing. I commend you to the word of God's grace. And that word is able. Well, that word's able for all of us, whatever calling we might be in. Maybe right now, uh, you, your, your calling is specifically as, as a parent at home with the kids. Uh, maybe as a, as a teacher or as a student. Uh, maybe your calling is as a spouse. Or maybe your calling right now is, is in uh, singleness. Or maybe your, your calling is... As a child, to listen to, to mom and dad. Uh, you're calling as a neighbor, as an employer, an employee. Whatever it is, God's word is able to build you up in that calling, to equip you in that calling. And so if you ever feel like, I'm not cut out for this. I don't know how to do this, whatever it might be. Or maybe you say, I don't want to do this. You know what you do? You open up your Bible and you read God's word. Turn to his word and find sustaining and sanctifying grace and so with this in mind what reason do we who belong to the church have for fear god has given us this threefold uh, really it's a triune protection that the present working of his holy spirit the fact that we've been bought by the blood of jesus and the fact that we have the word of the father these three with these three what else do we need with such a god watching over us we could have no stronger defense and in vain we look for a better guide and a protector than our triune God. No. When we cling to his word of grace. When we cling to the gospel. We need nothing else besides. Our father. We do thank you for your word of grace. Which is able to build us up. And to bring us into an inheritance. With those who are already sanctified in the heavenly places. We thank you. That you do not leave us orphan. As we come into your church, as we belong to your church, we belong to you, and belonging to you, we shall never be let go. And this gives us the greatest comfort and hope of all. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.